Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're entering into another uh, pericope as it relates to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And so it's helpful, I think, it's, help, it's been helpful for me to remind ourselves of where we are within this epistle. We have made our way through Paul's foundational discourse in the first three chapters, where we have seen the exalted Christ on display. First in chapter 1, we can see the heavenly witness to the exalted Christ. Then in chapters 2 and 3, the earthly witness to the exalted Christ. And here in chapters 4 and 5, Paul turns our attention from doctrine to devotion, to the earthly reality of the exalted Christ. We've seen how the first three chapters, in the first three chapters, Paul laid the foundation of our passage this morning by revealing that God has chosen from among Jews and Gentiles a people for himself who are united into one body, the church. Paul has characterized the unity of believing Jews and Gentiles as one new people, the body of Christ, constituting a new humanity through the second Adam, and has prayed for the perfection of that unity through the mutual experience of Christ's empowering love. He then demonstrated how this is accomplished by God's power through the ministry of gifted people given by Christ to the church so that the body might grow into spiritual maturity. So follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 17 through verse 24. Hear the word of the Lord. So this I say and affirm with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have learned him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been crafted in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help. Oh Lord, we do ask you this morning that you would attend the preaching of your word so that your people may be edified, so that the glory of your redemption in Christ may be seen, that we may all be united in the spirit this morning, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we live in what's known as the information age. The idea is that we're being constantly bombarded with information. 
Often it comes in the form of images and videos, clips and tweets, posts and TikToks. And they're all presenting something to us. They're all presenting values and morals. They tell us something of what is to be desired and what is to be shunned. In some of the maybe most subtle forms, but in thinking even in some of the most simple forms too, is you may think of a TV commercial. That's chapter. For a second there, I thought uh, we were being visited. Um, <laughs> but the idea of a TV commercial, if you watch them and, and ask yourself what, what is being valued, what morals are being upheld, and, and what, is being, what are you supposed to be desired? Usually it's a product, but they try to bring that product in within these ideas, within values and morals, within a, a certain set of uh, thinking with a mind and a heart. Well, Paul wants the Ephesian believers, and this morning my intent also is to understand what it means to be a Christian in a fallen world, because as we've been able to take note of in the most recent past, that in our world, in our fallen world, in fallen humanity, especially in the West, we find such presentations of a degrading aspect whereby as it's as it's always been since the fall that evil is good and good is evil but now in and that is a there's a basis for that a reality of being basis but now where maybe 18 years ago during the Obergefell decision and if you can imagine, that was 18 years ago, I think, or less. Maybe it's 12 years ago. Um, the idea is, the question was, what is marriage? Here in 2022, the question is, what is a woman? You can see there's a degradation there. There's a giving over. As it relates, there's a futility there. There's an ignorance. There's all that is related here in our passage this morning. So we, as with the Ephesians, should be in curiosity as what it means to be believers or in, a, in such a fallen world. May we also take encouragement to know that what is described for us in our passage this morning is, is, is something indelible as it relates to the human condition, as it relates to human nature at, since the fall, that the conditions that we find humanity in today are conditions that are found in Scripture. And it's not just that Scripture being the Word of God speaking to us uh, throughout all time and is relevant to all places and people, but it speaks to us also historically that 2,000 years ago, there was the same concern. 2,000 years ago, there was the same degradation. And so that we would take encouragement that as the Lord had preserved the Ephesian Christians, so he will preserve the church in our day, and so he may be glorified also in it. But the 
focus of our passage this morning is, is that we see the pericope, the greater pericope being through verse 24. The focus this morning is just through 17 through 19, where there's this cluster of descriptors. And they show how incongruous the pattern of life of unbelievers is with the life of the believer. It's interesting that Paul would even have to say such a thing, that he would have to say that he would have to draw this contrast. Why? Because the nature of our fallen world, the nature of our fallen nature, the nature of our enemy is such that we are constantly being assailed. And we're going to see that as it relates to our fallen nature, we are assailed in our most innermost parts, our mind, our heart, our understanding. These things assail us day after day. And that which is deceitful to us, that which is sinful, is then promoted in the greater culture. It is suggested to us by the evil one to give in a little, to slide a little, to relativize sin. So that it is ever relevant for us to read such a passage this morning that an exhortation from Paul, or from the Spirit of God, really, that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk. We're going to address this uh, part one of our passage this morning under three headings, under the preface, under the precept, and under the purpose. First is under the preface, we see that Paul says that he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. This is in direct relation to what came before where Paul showed that Christ was to rule his kingdom through the spirit and specifically within the church through the gifted or the spirit gifted ones. Paul here affirming his place in his apostleship says that he speaks of these things together with the Lord. That is, he writes these things, he speaks with Christ. The Ephesians, the Ephesians who heard this read to them should not have questioned what is Christ doing now in his church, certainly prior to this, but especially after this. For Paul says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord. Where does Paul put the Lord? Paul puts the Lord as as living, as an active Savior, as one who is with Paul and so with the Ephesians. So that whatever comes preceding or whatever comes following those words is based on what preceded it. So we would not forget that which has been won for us in Christ, that which has been accomplished for us and the inseparable operations of the Trinity in our redemption would not be separated from an exhortation to no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk. That we would not separate doctrine from devotion, that we would not separate indicative from imperative, from what we should know to from what we now should do. Michael Allen observes, he says, Ephesians 4.11 has already prepared us to receive an apostolic word or testimony as being a gift, not merely of a called human, but ultimately of the exalted Christ. 
And Paul, in, in, in <clears throat> employing the name of the Lord, he says, together with the Lord, kurios, the Lord, the, the word that uh, closely associated with the idea of uh, Yahweh, Paul says he affirms, it is affirmed by God. And certainly it's affirmed by the Lord as it relates to what he will go to, on to say in the greater context, we will see that he, he draws from the Jewish scriptures to bring this to bear upon the hearts of the Ephesians. But it's not just that the Lord in other places has said this, and so in light of Christ, he is saying it again. But that Paul, in writing this, is writing together with the Lord. So the preface, preface though very short, is not to be overlooked within this within this passage. And it comes before the precept. What is the precept? What is it that you are to do that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk? What we see here is that they are no longer to walk in a pattern of life as their former association. For he writes to a majority Gentile church. We, we saw that in chapter 2 where he, he talks about them being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He's speaking to a majority Gentile church and he tells them to no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. What is Paul doing here is he's telling them that their associations in their former life, in their former pattern of life, are now broken. Not such, that they no not such that they take upon a cultish attitude where they no longer converse with their former or with their family or their friends or, or those that they considered friends, but that they no longer consider those associations in the same way. They no longer consider themselves as the Gentiles. That Paul here is implying what Peter speaks of in greater clarity in his epistle, that they have been set apart as a new people, as a, na as a new nation, not as a geopolitical entity, but as, a, as an outpost of the kingdom of God, such that he can reference their former association as a Gentile as something of, of a former, as a past, no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. He also does so to create that there is only two, two people groups. There are those in Christ, true Israel, and there are those outside of Christ. Here Paul uses the term the Gentiles. And he tells them that they should not have this pattern of life. It's not that I mean, there's certainly places that they wouldn't go that the Gentiles went. And there's certain things that, um, trips and stuff maybe that they don't make. But the walk here is a pattern of life. It's not a location, though there are locations that are included within it. If, if, you, if we can understand what he's saying. But he's saying your pattern of life is new. He's trying to show them that the pattern of unbelievers or the unbelievers' pattern of life is in such disunity to them now 
that they may easily divide right from wrong, moral from immoral, light from dark, something that is substantial and something that is futile. He says that the unbeliever's pattern of life is one made up of a futility of mind, of a darkened understanding, one of ignorance, of a hardened heart, of a callousness of conscience, one that is greedy for impurity. We would do well to remind ourselves the origin of this condition, the universality of this condition, because we, we look at that and, and there may be a certain uh, uh, portion of our culture that we put in that real easily and it's on the forefront of all of our uh, um, Christian blog posts and Christian magazines and certainly we wouldn't be aware of that. But oftentimes what happens is, is, is we adopt our political culture and so we make it an us and them. And we're, we become the Pharisees. Oh, thank, thank you, Lord, that I am not like that sinner. But we must recognize the origin of this condition so that we might see its universality, that we might see that, that this was our former way of life, though maybe not in the same kinds of sins that we see and the same depravity that we see in the current culture. But had the Lord not pulled us out of our own stupor, out of our own graves, we might find ourselves at the very least affirming it. Paul alludes to this idea in chapter 2, or he's alluding to chapter 2. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We see that triad of enemies there, the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air and the spirit is in, at work within the sons of disobedience. And Paul says we were all like them. We all lived formerly in this way. So he's telling them that you would no longer walk as you formerly walked. You would no longer follow the course of this world. Our confession summarizes the teaching of Scripture on the effects of the fall. It does it well in chapter 6. Paragraph 1 tells of the occasion of the fall, and paragraphs 2 through 5 apply its effects. Paragraph 2 says, Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came, came upon all all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And at the end of paragraph three, it says, being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, 
unless the Lord Jesus set them free. And finally, paragraph four shows what flows from this corruption, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil do precede all actual transgressions. Here in Ephesians, we see it more specifically, a futility of mind. That they are no longer to walk as just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. The mind is the seat of cognition. One commentator related it this way. He says, how you think determines how you behave. What you think inevitably shapes how you live. The futility of the mind of this world is one in which is very clear is hostile to God. It's hostile really to themselves. I'm reminded of that uh, often referenced question that I like out of the Heidelberg Catechism and also the Orthodox Catechism, the Baptist version of the Heidelberg, saying what is the effects of the fall is basically that we hate God and hate our neighbors. And in line with our neighbors, we actually hate ourselves. Colossians 3 says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, uh, in many other places in scripture, we're, we're told of the mind we're told of the protecting of it, the cleansing of it, the renewing of it. Here, the setting our mind on things above. It's not that we are, and Paul's going to get here, but for the purpose of, of our message this morning, it's not just that we no longer, it's not longer we just stop doing something, but we start doing something else. We start thinking a different way. We look for the ways in which this world is presenting to us the futility of their mind, that which appeals to our former selves. Further described that they have the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding. Oftentimes when you see being followed by uh, that adjective, there's a sense of passivity to it. That this darkened is a passive effect. And, and it's, a, it's a product of something. The, the, the futility of their mind pr uh, produces this darkness in their understanding. The darkness of their understanding. We can see that very clearly in Romans chapter 1, something that Pastor Dana brought to our attention uh, last week, I believe. Romans chapter 1, verse 12. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you. For the wrath of God, in verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and righteousness. Because of that which is known about God is evident within them, for God had made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, invisible attributes have 
his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood though what has been, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to them, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I transposed my numbers there. Verse 21. Their foolish heart was darkened. A darkened understanding. One helpful commentator says it refers to the mind as the instrument of perception. In this case, Paul sees the unconverted as being in a condition where they cannot perceive truth. Truth is apart from them. Truth is foreign to them. So now when we go into the world and we say something truthful, something real, something sane, something true, we're held out as extremists. You're off the map. We're off the map. We are far extreme in all of our thinking. We're not... When, yeah, the topic of the day is, is the uh, so many alphabet soup movement. But we must think that we uphold committed, monogamous, man-woman marriage. We, we uphold abstaining till marriage. We uphold the authority of the father in the household. We uphold things that are so far off the map of today's culture that you almost feel a hundred miles away from a person when they start talking about where the culture is at or they start affirming things in the current relative culture. They're darkened in their understanding. It says also further that they are excluded from the life of God. Consider where they were as just Gentiles and their relationship to Israel. They were excluded, they were aliens and excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That's in their relationship to the oracles of God and to the gospel. But then they were brought near. Here, this idea of Gentiles in their depravity, they are excluded from the life of of God, this participation in divine life that we are brought into through union with Christ, through an act of the Spirit, by the blessing of the Father. We could, I could go back and read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 for clarification there. It's so clear there what he's talking about as the life of God that unbelievers are excluded from. And it's because of ignorance. It's because of ignorance that is in them. Michael Allen says it well. He says, it would be one thing to be ignorant, but teachable. The kind of pupil with whom a, a docent can work. But it's another matter to teach a student who proves to be both ignorant and unwilling to receive instruction. The idea of their ignorance is not due to a lack of education or opportunity. 
It is the willful choice of men and women determined never to relinquish their imagined autonomy. Paul told the church in Rome that what may be known of God is manifest to them, as we just read, but rather than embrace what God has revealed of himself in his creation, his eternal power and Godhead, they choose to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Consequently, the Gentile world is without excuse. This isn't an ignorance, oh, I just didn't know. It's not ignorance like you don't know. It's a willful ignorance. Because he goes on, he says, because of the hardness of their heart, he, he gives reason or purpose to this ignorance. He gives reason or purpose to this darkening, to this futility of mind. It's because of the hardness of their heart. The heart in Scripture is the seat of the will and emotions. It's often associated to be ref- as, as one's nature. For when you've been given a new heart in Christ, or in the old heart is, of stone is taken and the heart of flesh is implanted, it's not obviously a true physical medical surgery. So you've been given a new nature. You've been given a new will, even a new set of emotions, hopefully so that you would be, as Paul will say, angry at the things that you should be angry at. You should be given, you should give grace to the things that you should give grace to. You should love the things that you should love. You should possess only the things that you should possess. The idea here that they have a hardened heart is that their condition is not one that is incidental. It's one of nature. It's not one of incident. It's not one of accident. It's one of nature. For us, as we look upon this, we'll hopefully take encouragement to see how the Lord has worked in our own lives, what was overcome in our own selves, whereby you would desire to sit here this morning, if you so desire, and listen to this sermon and seek to be edified by it, to desire the things of God and worship Him is no small feat. The furthering of their hardness of heart and they having become callous. Callous, Matthew Poole says, though in part it be natural to them, yet is increased to further degrees by their own hardness and obstinacy, shutting their eyes voluntarily against the light. We know what calluses are. We're oftentimes, this is the time of year in Southern California where the flip-flops come out and we start wearing our sandals again, at least for me. Um, I start wearing my sandals again, and at first, my feet are sore. They've been nice and cushioned in some shoes and by socks, kept warm and cozy. And then I start wearing sandals. My feet become sore, and sometimes they hurt a little bit until those calluses wear in. Oftentimes, if you can tell a, a long-distance runner by their feet because their toes 
are mangled and beat up to all end because they've been calloused by continual torture, as I would say it, but continual discipline. This is the callousness of the unbeliever. This callousness suggests a waning sensitivity in moral terms. They have become accustomed to the ethic, ethnic, ethically questionable and the morally depraved. I think this is oftentimes, as we've been given a new heart, I think oftentimes there's some sense where this works reverse for the believer. The callousness builds first, and the hard, then the hardness sets in. For our idea where we might be inclined to shut our eyes to such ethically questionable and morally depraved things, we now go and participate in them. It's easy to, the low-hanging fruit is the entertainment industry. And it shouldn't go without saying that we go and we contribute to this industry that is pushing this agenda, that is pushing these values and these morals. And they are keen enough to know that there's a line that they can go to to inflict just enough squinting pain in those that their conscience and where their consciences haven't been seared to where people don't get up and walk out of those places or turn off their screens. And so they work. And next year, these movies will be more, these entertainment things will be more outlandish and will be more and more and more until either it collapses on itself due to the self-destructive nature of it or the Lord returns. This idea of callousness moves into this, 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 the, the reasons here. What is, what is falling out of this is that they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. The sensuality, the word here means debauchery, indecency, unrestrained indulgence. That describes almost every commercial I've ever seen. In, in whatever they're trying to sell to you, you need it because you don't have it. And if you have it, you need more of it. If it's something that's shameful, Sometimes it promotes that it can be hidden. If it's something that isn't shameful anymore, it's something that should be consumed as much as you can get it. Every kind of impurity includes any kind of immoral impurity, whether of motive or act. Whether, whether of motive or act, that which is being normalized on the screen to the masses was normalized to the privacy in some way of the individual. We, we know of the pornography industry. We know 
how it begins in the individual and then leads to the masses. So we should be very concerned that our public school systems promote such websites where the normalization of pornography is promoted. Because that which begins on that individual setting will eventually lead to the masses, as we've clearly seen in many of the many movies in the entertainment industry. But every kind of impurity also is whether in motive or act, so that nobody can speak of anything the way you think. You can't criticize the way somebody thinks. Because that's who they are. Here Paul is combating against that and he's, he's warning the Ephesians. This is as much to, sh- to say where the world is at as much as it to say to the Ephesians is don't go back. Don't let this creep back in. See where it leads. See where you were. I'm thinking of in... 1 Corinthians 6, as some of you were, Paul says, as right after he lays out a litany of sins. What then is the concern for the Christian? Are we here just to rail against the world and say, thank goodness I chose Christ? I don't think so. I think we're here to be wise as serpents and innocent as lambs. First, to be wise as serpents, to see where the world is pressing in on us, where the evil one suggests and tempts us to sin, where our old self wants to go. But we're also to be innocent as lambs. The idea is that these, this condition can still prove to be problematic in the life of a believer. That's the other thing, brothers and sisters, as we fellowship with one another and we share each other with oftentimes in confidence, we may share with struggles with one another. It may be grievous struggles. But let us not be surprised. For Paul is implying that this is something that will plague the believer. He will say this is not them, this is of their old manner of life, to no longer walk in this way, that we would be gracious and merciful to our fellow brother and sister in their stumblings. Idea is that it is also something that needs to be constantly evaluated. It must be recognized when it rises within or when we are tempted without. Paul says that it's something to be put off, it's something to be denied, something that's required to be renewed, there's something that's required to be put on. Again, I think our confession is helpful, and oftentimes, as I've read it from from time to time, I've found that it, in its helpfulness, it's also devotional. Paragraph 5 of chapter 6, the corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first notions thereof are truly and properly sin. Mortify the flesh. 
the devotional aspect of it is chapter 6 is on the fall. Chapter 7, as it, as it, as it, as it said that in paragraph 5, chapter 7 is on the covenants. So then you hear about how then am I to put off this? How am I to, to deal with this fallenness, this corrupt nature? And then chapter 8 comes in as Christ the mediator. That's what I mean by devotional. If you follow the logic and line of thought, when you get to chapter 8, oh, how happy you can be that we have such a Savior as Christ. So for those who have been united to Christ, the head, to the Savior, we see this connected to the previous point as to the effect of the ministry of the word upon the body of Christ. So let this be an exhortation and encouragement that you are present here in the assembly and not forsaking as some have the habit of doing. But see that this time is, the, is often the operating room of the great physician where these things are pointed out and you're reminded of to not walk in such a way. Maybe you're brought to mind in ways that you've been thinking this way and understanding a certain way. Things that you've been ignorant to, your heart has been hardened to. So where our minds are reminded of sane things, where our understanding is enlightened, the beats of our hearts of flesh are brought back into sync with the heart of our Savior. The callousnesses that are so, the calluses that are so easily formed upon our consciences are softened. And our love for righteousness is reignited or inflamed as we see the great mercy and grace extended to us in Christ. I'll conclude with these words from Ian Hamilton. The hope for the nations of our world does not lie in political renewal, societal regeneration, the overthrow of ISIS or the imposition of tougher laws for crimes. The world needs to see and to hear from a renewed Christian church, a church freshly invaded by the power, grace, glory, and truth of the gospel, The world is the way it is, not because of a lack of education or a failure in social manners, but because people harden their hearts against God. The fundamental problem in every society is is theological and spiritual. The Bible has a radical diagnosis of the ills that afflict our world. Humanity lives in active, willful rebellion against God. This is why the world's greatest need is the heart and life-renewing power of the gospel of Christ. And might I add, this is why Christ has left his church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is sane. We thank you that your word writes our minds as the Spirit works through it to renew our minds in gospel hope to be reminded, Lord, of our former selves, to be keen of that which is being promoted by the systems of this world, by the evil one and that which is longed for even by our condemned and dead nature. Help us, Lord. Help us to look to Christ as we stumble in these ways. Help us to lean not on our own understanding. Help us, Lord, to present a risen Christ, to present a true gospel 
that we may be lights to this darkened world, that we may see others come out of this former pattern of life. And so we may give you all the glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.